This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and I am really excited to be joined by special guest this evening, Mr. Matt Harmon. Matt, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Hey, man, thanks so much for having me. I feel like it's a good time to get together with you every single year and talk about some receivers, some some new guys, some some older guys in the league, whatever whatever we're going to chop it up on. It's always great. I don't know that uh, many people introduce me as Mr. Matt Harmon, but I, I, guess, <laughs> I, I guess I'll take it. I'll, 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 I'll don that mantle today. Absolutely. I think that's the teacher in me. I'm always so used to saying <laughs> Mr. You know, this person and Mr. That person. I think I still, when, when Matt's on with me, I think I still say Mr. Matt Caraccio to start every single podcast episode. So I think it's embedded in my mind to, to always use that. So uh, we'll get started because this draft class, it, it's really fun. And, and last year's wide receiver class, I think really surprised because like if, mm-hmm. we go, if, if you go back 365 days, there was a whole lot of people saying it was a nice class, but it was lacking, you know, the, the alpha wide receiver, the prototype. And, and there was a lot of guys that really impressed last year. So maybe first big picture, what was your take on this wide receiver class, you know, prior to the draft even happening and then getting a whole bunch of draft capital. But when you d- dug in and, and looked at some of these rookies for this year's draft class, did you come away impressed with them? Oh, I mean, there's definitely a ton of guys to be impressed with uh, from the 2020 group. But it's kind of like you were saying, the funny part about it was, you know, going into this year, maybe even, you know, like I said, 365 days ago, uh, people were excited about this 2020 crop. And then especially just all throughout the process, it's like, man, you know, you got Mel Kuyper out there saying there's like going to be however many receivers are going in the first like 50, 100 picks, whatever the first three rounds. I don't, I don't even remember what the quote was, but people were really expecting a lot from this wide receiver class. It was cl- clearly a group that had been hyped for a long time and people had high expectations for, you know, it, with previous classes, it was that there was, you know, no alpha wide receiver, no top level guy in 2019 or, or whatever. But like you said, that 2019 crap really, I think exceeded expectations full of a ton of like young, exciting guys that I'm really, really hyped to see their progress. But even that 2018 class, I feel like was kind of the same way. You know, there was maybe no true number one receiver. There was going to be a bunch of contributors, a bunch of threes, fours, maybe some high end twos there. But I think in hindsight, even that 2018 class looks really exciting. I mean, you've got Cortland Sutton, you've got DJ Moore, you've got Calvin Ridley, Michael Gallup, even a guy like Anthony Miller, I think could take the next step this year. So I think all in all, going into 2020, it's not that it made the class any less exciting. It just also put put my expectations into check that this wide receiver group in the NFL right now is full of exciting young players, not just from these last two draft classes, but even a little bit before. And it just makes the group in, in 2020, I think, kind of take it to the next level. Yeah, I feel like right now could be the golden age of wide receiver play in the NFL. Like, you know, like I know we're not going to dig into like redraft rankings or anything like that, but like I, I, I look at wide receiver rankings for redraft. And when I do a best ball draft, I'm just stunned at the depth of the wide receiver class. Yeah. And I think it kind of is part of what you're talking about. These last two years draft classes has really, you know, just given a whole new wave of really productive, high end caliber wide receivers and this class and maybe maybe even next year's class, if, if it holds out, you know, it holds out hope, you know, that they perform kind of like this past year, you know, does that 
it's just going to keep getting stronger and stronger. So if we look at, we're going to, I'm going to pick your brain on some of those other wide receivers from 2018, 2019 before this is over. But if we go to 2020 right now, the Judy Lamb discussion is, is something that I talk to every person that comes on here. Some people are more pro Judy, pro Lamb. Some people like Judy more because of his route running. Some people like Lamb because they think he's more of the complete package, even though he wasn't you know, the caliber of defense maybe in the Big 12, not nearly as maybe up, up to par in terms of what Judy faced at Alabama. Where did you kind of fall on both of them? You know, I'm sure you had both of them rated very highly, but was there a gap for you? I think there's a small gap for me, but like if I had to pick one, I think I would go Lamb over Judy, which I think might surprise some people because, you know, I'm sort of like a route running guy. I typically fall in love with these high-end, really technical route runners, but I really thought CeeDee Lamb was kind of underrated in that regard. I think he shows plenty of nuances in his game that, you know, that I think he could be a DeAndre Hopkins type route runner. And I know he gets a lot of comparisons to Hopkins as a contested catch player, just an overall stylistic approach to the game. But I think even the way they get off the line of scrimmage against press coverage was pretty similar. And then there's just so much that he can do from, like I said, a tight coverage standpoint. He's really comfortable high pointing the ball in the air. Obviously, what he can do in space with the ball in his hands is an after catch threat. There's so much there. Uh, Judy, I, th- I think, is also uh, has the potential to be a really great player too. And I think he's in. Both of these guys actually are in an enviable situation in terms of they've got a lot of other guys there to grow with. You know, in Dallas, they've got a high end wide receiver core. In Denver, you're looking at a guy in Cortland Sutton who sort of started to show the signs that he could be an alpha wide receiver in the NFL. And now you've got a guy like Jerry Judy to come in there that's just going to always consistently be open. I think he's going to see so many high percentage looks in that offense. I, I think both these guys landed in really good spots just in, in fitting them into wide receiver cores. And then it's just how, how often are they going to get the ball in their first year, second year, third year, while they're also surrounded by all of these really good pass catchers in their offenses. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I know like people get so overly concerned about depth charts when these guys get drafted in terms of fantasy and dynasty. I mean, I remember from the Hilltop fighting people off that who were ready to drop Calvin Ridley significantly because, you know, Julio Jones (laughs) is there. And I mean, look at the first two years of Calvin Ridley and I'm all in. I think he's still right now the best dynasty buy in all of football because I think he's ready to explode. And, you know, I, I heard you maybe it was with bloom or somebody recently you were talking and I'm, I'm assuming you're high on that too you think he's one of those guys that could explode this year as well right Kevin Ridley yeah I shared uh recently on Twitter in reception perception the top 35 success rate versus man coverage scores all time over the last six years I've been charting this data and in tw- in 2019 two wide receiver duos landed in that top 35 again overall Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones and John Brown and Stefan Diggs, obviously they weren't on the same team. Then now they're on the same team. I think those are the two best wide receiver duos in the NFL right now. Well, there's obviously the Tampa Bay group, but I think just in terms of separation, route running, always being open, those are the two, th- those two duos are so exciting. And yeah, I mean, Ridley, he's been awesome so far. I think if he plays 16 games last year, we're looking at him, you know, from a statistical perspective, that he's already had that breakout season. But I think 2020 is really going to be the year where he, establishes himself truly as a 1B receiver to Julio Jones. It's so similar to the Chris Godwin argument from last year, which is, sure, he plays across from an alpha number one wide receiver, but he's going to see so many high percentage looks, and he's an, we already know he's verifiably good at the game. So to me, I, I think it's just a slam dunk. that he, It's a lock that he has that season this year. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm expecting big things from him. I remember last year we talked about 365 days ago. We had a conversation on here about Marquise Brown, and we discussed him as a guy who I think people were looking at as just a one-trick pony, and we we talked a lot on here about how you know we thought there was a lot more nuance to his game, and he was much more versatile than I think some people were giving him credit. I think this year that guy who's a little bit being pigeonholed is Henry Ruggs III, who some people just see that, you know, that 4-2 speed, you know, and, and think that's his his calling card. And, and it is in, in some capacity. But similar to Brown last year, when you when you kind of put Ruggs through, you know, your evaluation, do you think there's more to his game than just a guy who's going to win vertically down the field? Can he be a more complete receiver like you thought Marquise Brown could be? Yeah, I think I like Brown a lot more than I like Ruggs, but that's just establishing how much I really like Marquise Brown. But to your point about Henry Ruggs, I definitely think that there is more to his game than just speed. And I mean, number one, he wasn't used all that much as just a straight go route player in Alabama's offense. You know, there are plenty of times where they use him on a variety of different routes. And I think that's going to be important to his development in Oakland because right now and, you know, how long is Derek Carr going to be the Raiders quarterback? Who knows? But For right now, they don't have a very vertically inclined passer. And for that reason, I think we're going to see him used on a lot of crossing routes. I I compared him to a Mike Wallace type player. Uh, You know, Wallace, I don't think ever truly developed once he got paid, once he got out of Pittsburgh. But the way that they used him in Pittsburgh, I thought was really just very conducive to what I think Ruggs can do. You know, he's a guy that you want to get in on slants, crossers over the middle of the field. And I think that's where Ruggs is going to be a really good player, at least to start off his career. And then we'll see if he does develop more of a route running acumen. Cause I think the potential is there. I think he definitely shows the, the, the reps that you want to see as a guy who can deceive defensive backs and he's going to take that ball vertically and he's, but he snaps back toward the quarterback. I think there's a lot of potential for him to be more than just a vertical threat. And, and like I said, he's already comfortable doing that because it wasn't what he was asked to do very often in college anyways. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the Raiders, big investment in him. They chose him over CeeDee Lamb. They chose him over Jared Judy. We'll see if it was a mistake or not, but they clearly have plans for him. I don't think he's going to be a guy that's just running vertical routes, clear out routes. Like that would seem like a bizarre pick based on the needs that they had as as an entire roster there. The other it's a three- funny receiver core in Oakland, though, right? Don't, yes. you, don't you think, like, yes. looking at it? I mean, it's <laughs> they would they they to me would have made so much sense, which I just can't never get behind the fact that they took him over Lamb and, and Judy. It's no shot to Ruggs, who I think is a really good player, but they looked like a, a team that if you slapped an alpha number one wide receiver there, like a Lamb, or I think Judy can be that player too, more confident in Lamb doing it than Judy. But still, you slap one of those guys in there, then you look at then you've got a group that's like, well, oh, this is this is a pretty diverse group of skill sets. You can win in a lot of different ways. I think Tyrell Williams is a if he's healthy this year is a really good starting receiver. I think Hunter Renfro showed you pretty much everything you want from like that reliable bunny hop slot receiver. Um and then of course they drafted some other guys this year too and they have Darren Waller who plays not really a tight end role anyway. So Again, with an alpha number one wide receiver there, you're you're looking at a group that I think you've got a variety of different skill sets. So you start to have the makings of a pretty good receiver core. But Ruggs, I think, like no discredit to his own skill set. I think he just kind of makes the picture more confusing to me rather than having a lot of clarity. Yeah, I mean, I think Ruggs... Ruggs would have been a nice piece to a receiving core that already had a clear... 
number one. And then he's bringing this dynamic skill set that this dynamic game breaking speed and, you know, capabilities. But now here he's going to go there and the pressure is going to be on him and kind of the whole Oakland offense to almost feed him, you know, either targets or opportunities to almost make him that alpha wide Mm -hmm. receiver when maybe that's not what he profiles at. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see how that fits together. If we group the, the the rest of the round one wide receivers together, Jalen Rager to Philadelphia, Justin Jefferson to Minnesota, and then Brandon Ayuk snuck in there to San Francisco. Of that group, just give me some thoughts on some of those on those three guys. Is there one or two that kind of intrigue you more, whether it's their skill, you know, what you saw when you put them for your evaluation or the landing spot or the depth chart? Yeah, I think with the depth chart in Philly, obviously there's going to be a ton of opportunity for Rager. Uh, I liked him a lot. I think he's got plenty of applications to the game. What was your What was your thoughts on on Rager overall? Like, wh- what do you see kind of his ceiling being as a pro? I I kind of since last summer, I kind of looked at him as like a Brandon Cook style player. I thought that was his that. kind of. I thought that was his kind of range. I know there were some on you know draft Twitter, Debbie Twitter, whatever you want to call it, that maybe sort of even higher than that. I mean, I think Brandon Cooks is quite the compliment myself. So yeah. some people were going some people were going above that. I know, you know, my co-host here, Matt Caraccio, he was he was his number two wide receiver. He loved mm-hmm. them. For me, he was in he was at either five or six. So I liked them. Uh Again, it was hard this year to really get a real read on him with how poor his surrounding cast was. Yeah. In a perfect world, I don't know if he's a true number one, but I think the 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 old school traditional number one wide receivers are going by the wayside. We've seen mm-hmm. new ones develop in all shapes and sizes in terms of usage and and stuff like that. Like a guy that I'll bring up later, Debo Samuel could be, and now we're, I just mentioned Brandon Ayuk. I mean, those guys are going to morph into probably the number one and number two options in San Francisco, and they're none of them profile as the traditional alpha you would expect at the position. So I do think there's an opportunity for Rager to develop he wasn't as high as some people are for me. Like I said, he was that five or six guy. I thought Philadelphia maybe reached a little bit, but I don't think Jefferson really fit what they wanted. So I kind of understand that they wanted a guy on the football field who I thought had a little bit more play speed, even though it didn't show up compared to Jefferson at the combine. Yeah. I think with Rager, Brandon cooks is actually a really good comparison because I definitely think overall, we know that cooks at this point, I think we know cooks is not, like you said, that true number one receiver. he, can be a team's top receiver, and we've seen him be that for several teams now. But we've also seen several teams decide, look, obviously now with there's injury concerns, but even early in his career, the Saints had Michael Thomas. They were more uh, wanting to rely on him there. The Patriots move on. The Rams have now moved on. I, I think he's at a he's a great piece to any offense, and I think for all of those Rams receivers that were there the last two years, I think he's the guy who was asked to create the most on his own rather than have the system create for him. So that's a, that's a good thing to be. I think he's, I think he's a good player and I think that's a pretty good comp for Jalen Rager. And if he ends up being that for Philadelphia, I think that's a huge win because I think the reason they went after him was they're an offense that was just such a small ball offense the last couple of seasons. And I think that would, if Rager doesn't break out or if Deshaun Jackson's not healthy they would end up being that exact same team again. And I think Justin Jefferson, that's what you want him to be, more of that short to intermediate receiver anyways. So I think that probably, like you said, that probably would have been pretty redundant to what they already have there. They have two tight ends. They've got two running backs that I think can come out of the backfield. It just didn't give them enough of a difference to what they already had. So 
I like Justin Jefferson landing in Minnesota a lot because they need immediate impact. Their wide receiver depth chart beyond Adam Thielen is disgusting. <laughs> there's, there's not there. I think the only other quote proven, and I think he's proven to be below average proven veteran on the team. There is Tajay Sharp. Like that's not good enough. That's not good enough to be your number two receiver. So Jefferson, I think is a guy that Adam Thielen was already kind of moving outside anyways. I don't think he's good enough off the line of scrimmage to play as an X receiver and neither is Jefferson, but they can run Thielen as their flanker and run Jefferson as the slot receiver or move those two guys around when they do go to 11 personnel. And I think that gives them a lot of options because Jefferson, I think, was one of, if not, you know, right behind Judy, the most refined route runner in the class. And that immediate impact is going to be felt in Minnesota. And then with Brandon Ayuk, I mean, he was the toughest evaluation for me in this year's draft class because you just do not see enough on his college film, whether it's from an opportunity perspective or an effectiveness perspective to think he's going to be a good wide receiver against press coverage pretty much anytime soon. Uh, so that that's a little troubling, but at the same time, I think he can get vertical when he's facing off man coverage. He's got plenty of nuance at the top of his routes in terms of sending a corner to the outside before he breaks inside on a post. And he can make a lot of big plays in that offense. I think even more vertical plays than Debo Samuel could make. And if he had gone to any other team, I think it'd be a lot more worried about, well, how are they going to deploy him? Where are they going to line him up? But I really do have a lot of faith in Kyle Shanahan to find a way to get Ayuk on the field and, and find that role for him. So had he gone to any other team, it would have been a little more problematic. But now he might now he might be asked to kind of step up even more with Debo Samuel's injury. You know, now now this wide receiver core looks even more barren than it did probably going into the draft. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Brandon Ayuk, you know, I liked him, but he looked at a guy that it was going to take some time mm-hmm. to kind of develop maybe his whole game. You know, obviously transferred from a Juco school. Then last year, Nikhil Harry was the alpha there at Arizona State, you know, and then he kind of emerged this year. But the landing spot is very intriguing because Kyle Shanahan, better than just about anybody in the league, gets his wide receivers in position to make things happen after the catch. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see, but if Debo's not there and all the, the defensive attention turns to Ayuk, that could be some troublesome early in the year. So you wonder if they think Debo's going to miss the early portion of the year. Do they, do they maybe look at a veteran that's cut or, or go dabble in the trade market? Or if Antonio Brown or Josh Gordon are available to be signed something to, to kind of, you know, upgrade that wide receiver corpus I think will be interesting and going back to Jalen Rager I do think it's going to be really interesting to follow these first round wide receivers because there really did seem like an opportunity and we we never know who was really available to trade up or trade back but there was an opportunity with CD Lamb slipping that I do wonder if the Eagles could have found a way to get ahead of the Cowboys and and make a move for a guy like CD Lamb like that's the one thing and I, a lot of, some people really knocked the regular pick. Some people liked it. My one question is, could they have gotten ahead of the Cowboys and gotten CD Lamb? And if it didn't, like, if the price wasn't exorbitant, I, I, I almost think that they might have made a little bit of a mistake. The Eagles always move around. So even if they lost some draft capital, they probably could have recouped some of it in future trades that they usually do a good job with. That's the one thing is CD Lamb in that offense. And now and we're talking. I, yes, exactly. So so I, that's one thing that I think will be really interesting to follow. But like we said, if Jalen Rager becomes a Brandon Cook-style player, I don't think many people will be knocking that move there uh, at all. 
Uh, if we take this to some guys at the top of the second round, a couple of bigger bodied guys, where do you kind of stand on the Michael Pittman Jr. and T. Higgins? We were fans of both of them here a lot. I know I we we were on record saying we thought Michael Pittman was maybe the most underrated receiver in this draft class because in a traditional year, we thought he could easily be a first round pick. And we were defenders, more me than even Matt here, uh, at Saturday to Sunday in terms of T Higgins, I know some concerns about separation quickness. You know, people are, get nervous about the Laquan Treadwell type comps, but then, you know, I sometimes wonder like, could maybe T Higgins develop into either Kenny Galladay or somebody like that? Not every bigger guy who doesn't test out great in the 40 doesn't make it for, for ones that, you know, there are some that do and there, there are some that don't. What do you kind of think about Higgins and, and maybe his long-term uh, ramifications and kind of being tied at the hip now with Joe Burrow as well. Yeah, we will start with Michael Pittman. I'm 100% on you, on you guys' side there. Love Michael Pittman. I think he was so underrated. And it's interesting you bring up Kenny Galladay because I think – I think you know from a right away perspective. I, I feel, and also I just feel like it's it's worth saying on every podcast that I go on. Like everything is in you know kind of COVID adjusted terms because we just don't know when teams are going to get together, what that's going to look like. So all of these rookies that we're talking about this year, you know, we might be hitting August, and this is the first time they'll get together with their teams and get together with their quarterback. That's just going to be such a bummer and. You know, who knows if any of these rookies end up making an impact because of that. But just in a theoretical world here, Michael Pittman, to me, from an immediate impact perspective, I think could be like Kenny Galladay in his first couple of years in the league, which was, you know, he's a, he's a long ball threat. He's a contested catch guy. But the player that he really reminded me of was Michael, I mean, was uh, Allen Robinson. And to me, like, again, similar sort of development. In 2015, when Robinson first broke out with the Jaguars, he was a deep threat and he was thrown to in tight spaces. But we've seen now that Robinson is, in my opinion, a reception perception would show you one of the best separators in the NFL. I mean, he always had that potential to be a great route runner, but last year he finished number one in terms of success rate versus man coverage and reception perception. He wins at all levels of the field, not just deep, not just in tight coverage. And I think Pittman, at his peak outcome, could be that kind of player too, where he wins at all levels. He's not just a 50-50 ball guy. He's not just a deep player. I think he can separate short, intermediate, and deep. So I think the Colts got a total steal. I think he can develop into an alpha, into that number one wide receiver. And then with T. Higgins, I think he people get tripped up on him because he's kind of just an old school player. To me, he reminds me, you know, growing up as like a tortured Panthers fan, he reminds me a lot of like Moose and Muhammad. You know, nothing flashy, just, you know, kind of grit, number two possession receiver. I mean, he's, it's funny, actually, Musa Muhammad for a long time, I don't know, I don't think he still does, but had the longest touchdown reception uh, record in the Super Bowl. But he was not known as like a big play <laughs> guy, you know what I mean? So I think T. Higgins could kind of be that type of player too. And the Bengals could really be a, a fun team to spread the field this year because if everybody's healthy, and, and that's a big if with A.J. Green, John Ross, even Auden Tate, who flashed a little bit last year. Like, they could put four or five receivers on the field and be a really fun team to kind of pick you apart that way, and T. Higgins can be a part of that. But I do think it would be kind of a bummer if Green and Ross are not healthy, and then you're kind of looking at Boyd and Higgins, who I both think are more that possession receiver type. Then I think you could be looking at, a again, sort of what I said about the Eagles, you know, a small ball offense when you can't really push the ball down the field. Because I don't think – 
that's really going to be either one of their skill sets. Higgins maybe could develop into in time as more of a vertical threat because I think some of the flashes are there from a contested catch standpoint. But I would bet on him being that sort of you know long term old school number two possession receiver. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's going to be interesting to kind of see. You know, some people get so caught up on you know, the 40 times and he, and Tegans didn't even perform at the combine, but then he performed at the, his pro day before everything happened in our country and all the pro days got shut down and it wasn't very good, you know, and then I watch it, you know, when I watch his film and I, you know, in big moments and big games, I'm just like, came up pretty big. So yeah. like, you know, like, you know, sometimes like, you know, we find things to nitpick and, you know, Deshaun Watson, his former teammate, like, you know, like at your former, you know, college at Clemson there, like same thing. The thing that always stuck out about Deshaun Watson was in those two games against Alabama. Like it just, he just looked different. It just looked yeah. like he was going to find a way. And, and T Higgins in a different capacity, not on the level of Deshaun Watson, but I watched enough T Higgins in big games with Clemson always playing them that he just seemed to find a way to make a catch or maybe he didn't have that big separation. And it'll be interesting to see if, if that translates uh, for sure. Any of the other day two wide receivers, there were so many of them that really kind of piqued your interest. We don't have to go through every one of them. Was there any favorites of yours out of the Denzel Mims, LaVisca Chenault, KJ Hamler, Chase Claypool, Brian Edwards, Van Jefferson, Devin Duvernay? I mean, quite the list there of names. Was there a couple of them that that maybe piqued your interest a little bit more when you kind of put them for your evaluation? Yeah, I think Mims was interesting. I, I wasn't expecting him to fall as far as he did. I, I do think he was probably just shy of being, you know, a true first round pick wide receiver. So I get why in a stacked class he might have just fallen through the cracks for some teams that in the second round they valued somebody else higher. They wanted a different type of role. Um, I, again, in a, in a non coronavirus world, I think I'd be really high on Denzel Mims to make an immediate impact because he does look a lot like what the Jets need and I think even Brashad Perryman if he would was to get together with Sam Darnold earlier in the offseason and start building that chemistry and that connection this Jets offense just needs someone on the outside to win in tight coverage to make explosive plays and I think there's a theoretical world where those guys make that wide receiver room much better but again it's hard to know how things are going to break this offseason with everybody when are, when are we going to get into camps? Are we going to get into camps? Whatever. So, But at the same time, I think Mims has a great opportunity long-term if he does pop this year to really stay at one of the top two spots in that depth chart because, man, they just can't be pumping a bunch of targets to Ryan Griffin and Jamison Crowder again if they want to win more football games in New York. So Mims obviously was definitely really interesting, especially because he fell to a point where people didn't expect him to. Uh, Brian Edwards is also really interesting in Oakland. We talked about that wide receiver group there. And, you know, if Tyrell Williams doesn't make it back from a foot injury uh, that he was dealing with last season, I think they have a big need for a big possession receiver type guy. And especially with Hunter Renfro as a small slot player, Lynn Bowden is sort of a, a gadget guy there. Uh, we mentioned Henry Ruggs is certainly not his game, but one thing that, that always stuck out to me watching Derek Carr play with Amari Cooper and Michael Crabtree was big moments, contested catch moments. I think Carr eventually grew to not trust Amari Cooper in those 50-50 ball scenarios, and I think for good reason, too. It was clearly the weakest point of his game early on in his career, but he knew that he could go to Crabtree in those situations, and he would rely on Crabtree a lot in those 
red zone, third down type situations. And and I wonder if Brian Edwards, who I, I kind of see, I, mean, I don't think he's going to be Michael Crabtree, but sort of similarities in terms of the archetype there. I wonder if he could make a more immediate impact than we think just because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think Mims and Edwards are, are, are both in interesting scenarios. I mean, Edwards played a lot of ball at South Carolina is a guy that broke out, you know, early on in his collegiate career and, you know, and Mims is almost the polar opposite. He kind of had his breakout more towards the back end of his career there, but the Jets depth chart wide open. And, you know, Edwards, we, we talked about that, you know, the Raiders and their depth chart before and, and, you know, rugs didn't maybe almost added questions. It will be interesting though, because if Edwards also pans out, I do see an Edwards, rugs and then Renfro. I, I do see that if they actually all morph together with Darren Waller, maybe complementing each other. But that's 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 relying on a lot of ifs, right? A lot I, of ifs, yeah. A, a slot wide receiver who who went late last year, a third round wide receiver in Edwards, and then also rugs also panning out. So in a perfect world, if they were to all reach you know, their, their potential in terms of what they could be at the next level, I could see them complementing each other, but you know, that would be quite the draft hall if that falls into place that all those guys pan in perfectly. So I do think that will be interesting to kind of see last question on the 2020 class. And cause then I want to go back and, and talk some 2019 guys. Was there anybody that through your evaluation ended up going on day three whether it was Quintus Cephas, Antonio Gandy-Golden, Tyler Johnson, Isaiah Coulter, Gabriel Davis, anybody else from the 2020 class that you are intrigued by who would definitely be, I would consider, you know, undervalued or a sleeper because they went on day three, but maybe in a different draft class, they go a little bit higher based on what you saw. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think there was anyone like that for me this year. Or maybe I just didn't get deep enough into the class, like really comb through some of those day three guys, but yeah, to me, it was just, it was so stacked up at the top that I think, you know, some of these guys that maybe in other draft classes would have gone on day three or whatever, but there, there were just so many quality players in that round, like two to three range, you know, LaVisca Chanel, we didn't talk about, but he's someone that I think like what they've been doing with D Westbrook the last few years as like a speed slot player. I think LaVisca Chenault could, slide into that role, but actually be much better at it than D.D. Westbrook is. Uh, so there are so many of those guys like on day two and day three that there wasn't anyone from uh, – or day two that, that there wasn't anyone really uh, on day three that like jumps out to me as someone I'm really, really tracking so far. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. And, and most of the guys, you know, went early. I mean, we it still yeah. ended up being like, I forget, 17 or 18 guys who went in the, in that first three rounds. So there wasn't a lot of tremendous value much later in the draft. So let's, let's take this back. Let's, let's bring up some 2019 guys that we t- sat here last year previewing before they started their NFL careers. And like you said, I mean, this class, when you really stop and think about, the development and the and the success in year one of guys like AJ Brown, Debo Samuel, Terry McLaurin, DK Metcalf, you know Marquise Brown, you know in spots, you know Darius Slayton, Deontay Johnson, Mecole Harmon. I mean, some of those guys were date. You know, Darius Slayton was I think around five. Deontay Johnson was somewhere in in, in round three. Those guys weren't even all at the top of the draft. They were kind of sprinkled throughout the whole draft. Anything that you can kind of put your finger on of what it was that led to so much success from that class? Did we just 
not appropriately valued him last year or is it just becoming harder and harder to with the college game being so much more spread out is it harder and harder sometimes to maybe get a true evaluation in the collegiate game to make that transition or maybe is that the the concept of so many college concepts coming to the nfl is that maybe what's happening to help some of these guys immediate make that transition uh, from the college game to the NFL game. Well, I think a lot of what you said there is true. And I mean, look, you talk about like guys going kind of late. I mean, Terry McLaurin was a third round pick and, and he looks, I mean, he, to me is the guy in this entire group that I think I am the highest on. I think he's going to be a complete star in the NFL. And yeah, this guy was a third round pick. And I think, I think all of these guys, were just kind of overthought or pigeonholed. You know, when it was Terry McLaurin, it was, well, he was not very productive. He's, I, he, maybe he was on the older side, whatever. He didn't have a great, like, statistical profile, but it seems like everybody that comes out of Ohio State has that problem, but then goes on to have some level of success in the, at the NFL level. Uh, with DK Metcalf, obviously there was a ton of overthinking there. We could talk more. We could pick Metcalf more apart as we go too. But even AJ Brown, who I think is the one that we know for sure can be a top level receiver. Cause I think he had the best rookie year of any of these guys from a production standpoint, from, you know, a fantasy standpoint, even he was a player that people thought and myself included, I thought he'd be a really good big slot receiver in the NFL. I thought he was that that would be his easiest path to a good strong role and steady production but that really wasn't what he what he played as a rookie as a rookie he was playing that outside x receiver role drawing top corners seeing press coverage on a high rate of his routes going downfield and he was awesome in that you know in reception perception he was above the 85th percentile in terms of beating man coverage he was just like i said full field route runner getting off press at the line he's definitely someone that it was not the player that I expected coming into the NFL. And I think that's just the case with all of these guys. There was a lot of, I think some over analysis for the wide receivers in last year's draft class. But when you look at them, when you put them through reception perception, I think all of these guys, not, not all of these guys, but plenty of the guys from last year's draft class, I think can be long-term number one receivers in the league starting, like I said, with AJ Brown, who I think we already saw play that role last year. Yeah, I mean, the A.J. Brown conversation is fascinating to me because he, I think Matt and I here at Saturday Sunday, we, he was our favorite wide receiver last year, which wasn't yeah. a common a common thing pre-draft and definitely wasn't a common thing post-draft when he went to Tennessee, of all places, you know, not really known for big-time receiver production. But, but you just said it there. We liked this game thinking he was going to be a big slot wide receiver in the mold of a Juju Smith. Like where I still think that's where Juju might be at his best, but you just talked about it right there. Like it looks like AJ Brown, even as a fan as I was, I think I undersold him a little bit, even I, even though I loved him because I think his versatility is already ahead of a guy like Juju Smith. And that's what it, it gathered. I'm gathering from you as well. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, look, you, you never see Juju play outside at the at the successful rate that AJ Brown does. In his reception perception sample, he was outside on eighty four point two percent, or excuse me, he played outside on eighty eight percent of his charted snaps and on the line of scrimmage that on that number one X receiver role on eighty four percent of his snaps. That's that's not what Juju's doing at all. And again, the, how often he's beaten man coverage, how often how often he's eaten beaten press coverage. It's it's it is the level of that true number one outside receiver, 
And I think there's just, he's a tough player to pick holes in from an individual player perspective. I think from a fantasy angle, you can definitely question the overall passing volume in the Tennessee offense. He's definitely not going to repeat the yards after catch numbers that he posted as a rookie, but he is great with the ball in his hands. He is a total bully at the catch point. Uh, and he is a, a strong separator. I don't think there's anything that like we shouldn't put limits on this guy as an individual talent based on our college evaluations. Cause like you said, whether it was me, whether it was you, whether it was the, the public consensus, he's already way out kicked those. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think, I think the the sky is really the limit for him in terms of what he can be. And I'm excited to kind of see how he does year two. Kind of that whole Tennessee offense, I think, is really fascinating to kind of see where they pick up from last year. What we saw from Ryan Tannehill, is it repeatable in some capacity with a little bit of regression or, you know, could it really fall off the cliff? I don't know. If if they feed A.J. Brown a lot, I think, and, and Derrick Henry, I think they'll probably be okay there. You mentioned Terry McLaurin before. I want to go back to him. You've been at the forefront, probably one of the leaders of the Stefan Diggs fan club over the years. <laughs> is that the is that the kind of trajectory you could see for McLaurin, a guy who you recognize and reception perception looks at as one of the premier route runners in the league? Do you think he has that level of skill to be that kind of special player? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think he's honestly already there. You know, if I really wanted to get crazy, I think I could compare him to like Odell Beckham at his peak because and, and Stefan Diggs is sort of the same way, because not only are all three of these guys at their peaks, I think elite separators, they're also great in the contested catch game. I, I just posted this before we hopped on here, but talk about Terry McLaurin as a separator in a second, but he showed the ability to make outstanding catches in tight coverage last year. Over 30% of his targets sampled for reception perception were a contested catch attempt, and he hauled in 82% of those. So, I mean, again, just I think he's great at tracking the ball. He's totally comfortable in tight coverage. But then what you look at with him as a separator, 76% success rate versus man coverage, 79.7% success rate versus press. Those are you know, not only at the 89th and 92nd percentile all the time, that's that success rate versus man coverage score is the 34th best score ever, ever charted in the series history. Again, dating back to 2014, over 100 unique players, over 250 sampled seasons. So I think he already went out there and, and proved that he is right in the caliber of a Stefan Diggs type player. And, and he could be that guy too. It's like, all we really need all we really need, man, is for Dwayne Haskins to just be like passable. And Terry McLaurin, I think, is going to completely explode this year because he should garner elite target share, elite red zone target share, just strong opportunity levels based on the talent around him in that Washington offense. So again, if we can just get Dwayne Haskins to be like Blake Bortles level, I, <laughs> like, I think that McLaurin can really go off this year for, for fantasy, for Washington fans, whatever you want to say. If I had to put you on the spot and I said, in, you, you're, you're playing in 10 dynasty leagues and you can pick either Terry McLaurin or Calvin Ridley for your team, would you, want to, would you split it down the middle, five and five, or do you have a definitive favorite between those two and you would go all in, give me 10 of that guy over the other one? That's a that's an awesome uh, question. Uh, and at first, I was like, "Ooh, that's kind of hard." But the longer I sat here and thought about it in like fifteen seconds, I think <laughs> I'm gonna I think I'm gonna go ten McLaurins because I think I think he's got the potential to be like. I, I do think Ridley is 
already, you know, talk talk about elite separators. I think Ridley's already right up there, but I think McLaurin has shown he can be a, a number one receiver in a team's offense like right away. I mean, he was verifiably good so quickly in the NFL, and, and so is Ridley, but I think just contextualizing the two players, like what they can be at their peaks, I, I think that, like, whereas I think Calvin Ridley can be a really good 1B, I think Terry McLaurin can be and a potentially elite 1A. That's just how high I am on the player. Yeah, and McLaurin is a great test study also for people who sometimes, you know, look at collegiate statistics and overvalue them, in my opinion, at times, because McLaurin was in that offense where he, you know, he kind of, listen, obviously, if anybody knew he was going to be this, he wouldn't have fallen to where he did. Right. And I think, I think, the perception pre-combine, you know, Lesher to combine helped his per- perception, you know, in terms of how athletic he was. But like, I think a lot of people looked at him and, and kind of just pigeonholed him as he's a good player. He's, you know, maybe, you know, I thought I was overvaluing him when I said, oh, I thought he could be a younger Golden Tate, like before Golden Tate just morphed <laughs> into, you yeah. know, the slot player late in his career. And I thought I was like, okay, maybe I'm a little too high on him. No one else, you know, not a lot of people seem to really love him. And then just like you said, exploded out of the gates. Like, again, kind of like I, even like I said about AJ Brown, I like these guys, but they exceeded expectations so quickly at, at, in their first year. It kind of gets you excited for, for where they could potentially go in, in year two. I want, I want to take this to another player, a little, little further under the radar. And I, I hope you, you put him for reception perception, but I'm not sure because he didn't have a lot of receptions. I think if I said before Calvin Ridley is my favorite dynasty buy, my favorite dynasty value buy right now is Mecole Hardman. What thoughts on Mecole Hardman? What he did last year is it is it repeatable? What if you if you did study him? Like, do you think he could be a guy that we may have to wait another year because they restructured Sammy Watkins and they re-signed Demarcus Robinson for one year? But is Mecole Hardman a guy that could explode at some point in the future? In your opinion? Yeah, I think so. I haven't put him through reception perception yet because obviously he's outside the top 50 uh, group of guys that I'm contracted to do for the fantasy footballers ultimate draft kit. But he's a guy that I really want to get to sometime before kickoff in September. Like I've got a whole bunch of players, you know, whether it's well, it was Curtis Samuel, but obviously based on the history, I made sure I got that one done. Uh, this year. <laughs> but, you know, whether it was Curtis Samuel, Christian Kirk, uh, James Washington, Alan Lazard, Nicole Hardman right up there at the top of the list, too. Like there's a lot of young guys that I want to look at that were, you know, outside the top 50 ranked players for the fantasy footballers. But Hardman, uh, just, of course, from a passing view, super explosive. But even as a college player in Georgia, I thought showed more ability than just than just speed. I think there is enough subtleties and enough nuances to his route running um, that he could he could be a full time starting receiver at some point. You know, maybe a number three type of guy, but that's really what you're looking for if you're the Chiefs. You know, it, it, Sammy Watkins is not a bad player. He's just so far off what we expected him to be in the NFL. Uh, but he can still offer big plays and can pop up in big moments like he has done each of the last two playoff seasons but I think they'll move on from him this year. And then you're looking for that number three target there beyond Tyree kill and Travis Kelsey, and maybe even beyond their new running back this year too. So I think he can easily slide into that role and be a productive player. Like what he did last year from a per touch standpoint, you know, touchdowns is not going to be repeatable, but I think there's to answer your question. I definitely think there is more to his game there. Yeah, for sure. He's a guy that I've been red star and as a guy I want to try to get on, 
as many teams as I can get now before paying the the full cost. I think it's going to be a year from now. Where do you stand on? Are you in agreement with the Deontay Johnson hype that seems to be out there in, in the Twitterverse? Uh, I think this offseason, obviously very productive. Johnson is a guy from you know from a smaller school, Toledo, that here at Saturday Sunday we liked and we were surprised as much as we liked him. We were surprised when he went in the third round last year. Yeah, you know, you heard whispers that he was maybe near the top of Steelers wide receiver board, and we kind of chuckled or laughed. You know, when you hear that, that it could just be coach speak and and here or there, and they seem to be a, a, a quite the success in terms of. Cr- developing young wide receivers there where do you kind of stand on Deontay Johnson are you aboard the the hype that's out there or are you a little bit more you know a little bit further back saying I'm not 100% buying in just yet oh well I mean I'm trying to drive the bandwagon here let me let me get one of these top one of these top few spots well let's start with the, the exciting part and then we'll temper it down a little bit we'll put some reasonable expectations on here but Number one, Johnson was awesome as a rookie. I, I thought he was productive, despite the fact that he had some bad, some of the worst quarterback play I've ever had to watch in Pittsburgh last year. Mason Rudolph, Duck Hodges, those guys are those guys are dust. They can, they definitely can't play. But Johnson, beyond just being productive and showing some splash plays, was probably my biggest riser after putting him through reception perception. He finished at the 88th percentile in terms of success rate versus man coverage, 75% success rate versus press. That's putting you in a group of players where honestly, it's you've got to, based on the research I've done, if you finish above the 80th percentile in reception perception, you've got about a 30, like less than 30% chance that you'll never record a thousand yard season. So I think Deontay Johnson will eventually have, that breakout year um whether it's this year though is a, a little bit more questionable like i think we need to keep the expectations reasonable from a fantasy angle because number one there are still a lot of quality players in this steelers offense obviously we know what juju is i, I don't think juju is a number one receiver i think if you're gonna you can't i don't think you can run a healthy offense through a player like juju smith schuster just like you can't really run a healthy passing offense through a player like just like Julian Edelman, you need a Rob Gronkowski or a Randy Moss to dictate coverages. You need an Antonio Brown to dictate coverages. You need with Jarvis Landry, like you need Odell Beckham to really pop off for this to be a healthy offense. Despite the fact that Jarvis Landry, I think, had his best year of his career last year. So, I think Juju fits into that type of mold. But luckily, the Steelers have a lot of other options to 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 break out as that number one outside receiver. I think. Johnson is my favorite bet to do it, but I mentioned James Washington earlier. James Washington's not a bad player either. He's he's going to command volume. He's going to command especially deep targets. I think he he proved he can be that type of player. I think Johnson has the higher ceiling. I think Johnson's the better route runner, separator, technician right now, but there's already a lot of competition for targets in this offense, and there's a huge quarterback risk. Like, Here's the deal. If Ben Roethlisberger comes back as a top 12 type quarterback in the NFL, then we're flying. I think Juju can have a bounce back here. I think Johnson can break out. And I think Washington can be a great value in the double digit rounds for fantasy. But if Ben comes back at 50% of what he used to be, we're, we're in trouble. You know, I, I think Juju can have a solid statistical season, but these other guys will probably just be volatile weekly plays and then if Ben comes back and gets hurt again then we're looking at the Mason Rudolph experience again because they didn't do anything at their backup quarterback spot so 
as excited as I am about Johnson, the player, and I'm willing to draft him aggressively and rank him aggressively in fantasy, just be aware that just like with Curtis Samuel last year, I think Samuel is still going to be a really good wide receiver. But when the quarterback position went sideways, his season was off the rails immediately because they, he just did not fit with the type of quarterback that was there. For That was not the quarterback we were all projecting him to be playing with when we were all really excited and overdrafting him in fantasy. So that same risk, I think, comes with Johnson this year, despite the fact that, again, I'm really high on him to be a good player in the long run. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm I'm – I'm excited about Deontay Johnson. He'd be another guy that I'd almost want to buy now before, you know, listen, there's been a lot of talk and you mentioned the wide receivers they have there. We didn't even talk about Chase Claypool before and and what he develops into, you know, they may, they may not give Juju another, you know, contract. I think they, they probably will, but I don't think it's a slam dunk. If you, if you listen to some of the Pittsburgh beat writers, I, I don't think they think it's a, a guarantee. I think it's a, a wait and see a little bit there. You know, so Deontay Johnson is a guy who I think, you know, their decision on Juju may ultimately come down to just how special or how good of a player they think Deontay Johnson can be, even though their skill sets are very different and, and where yeah. they play, it could just be something in terms of, you know, where they want to, you know, kind of invest in, in terms of their resources, you know, and if they think they have guys in Claypool and James Washington that could be productive as well, they might be willing to move on. Did you, uh, you mentioned you put 50 guys through and I didn't hear him on the list of guys who didn't get put through that you might, that you said you might look at was Darius Slayton, a guy that you had an opportunity to look through. Yes. Uh, and he, he's very interesting. Like we talked about with, uh, Jalen Rager, you know, that they were clearly looking for speed uh, because they didn't want to be a small ball offense. And I think that's a big reason why Slayton broke out right away last year was, I mean, you, you, you know, following the Giants, like they've got Golden Tate, they've got Sterling Shepard. I'm still really, really high on Sterling Shepard if he's ever healthy and playing 16 games that he can break out and have a really good season, have that thousand yard season, whatever. Still high on him, the player. But Again, more of a small ball, short to intermediate wide receiver, even if he's not just a slot guy. They obviously are going to throw to Barkley out of the backfield a ton. They have Evan Ingram as kind of a move tight end. But what they didn't have was like a big outside X receiver, and that's who Darius Slayton was right away. I don't think that Darius – like I'm not super – I don't want to say that I'm down on him. I'm not down on him, but I think if he's – I would say he could be a Marvin Jones type of player long term. Like in a pinch, I think he could be your number one receiver, but really what you want him to be is the guy that plays that X receiver role because you know he can win deep and he can get off the line of scrimmage on some shorter routes pretty quickly. So I liked a lot of what I saw for him. And I think he, again, he fits in so well with this Giants receiver core because it's sort of the one of these things doesn't look like the other principle. And I think for that reason, he can be a really good X receiver for this team. Yeah, I'm, I, I agree. And I think if he becomes Marvin Jones, I think, you know, that's a, that's quite that's defined. Yeah. Quite defined for yeah, quite defined for the Giants in round five. There, I think they would be very happy with that. And it could be one of those things that his 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 yards and touchdowns could regress a little bit this year yeah. if the other guys like you talked about are you know Golden Tate's not suspended this year. If Sterling Shepard stays healthy, if Evan Ingram stays healthy, you know, so it could be that his numbers actually go down, but he still continues to develop into a guy who could be a good player, you know, for the long term for the Giants. A couple more. Uh, questions to close out from the from the 2019 guys 
any hope. I was never big on Nikhil Harry. He was a guy that I don't have in any my dynasty leagues because everyone wanted the pencil him in as their number one guy last year once he went to New England. I had my reservations if he was going to fit what Tom Brady likes to do. It seems to be that he really didn't last year. Going into year two now, I don't even know if there was enough data to really he really run him through a full evaluation on him. But what do you think about Nikhil Harry just in general as a player? Yeah, I thought he like whereas people were comparing AJ Brown to Juju Smith Schuster last year, I thought Nikhil Harry in a in a best case scenario could be that type of guy uh, because I don't think he can win against press and man coverage on the outside in the NFL. I think he has to play that big slot receiver role and. You know, I think there's a scenario where Nikhil Harry's healthy and they can use him in creative ways in New England. Because, again, I think from a 50-50 ball perspective and from an after-catch perspective, I think there's a lot to offer there. But that New England offense just looks so weird on paper that I don't really want to be personally invested in it at all. So I think there's a scenario where he has a very good season as, you know, a not, like a sort of like this year's DJ Chark. You know, nobody was talking about DJ Chark really going into – 2019 but he then he comes out because there's opportunity in that receiver core and he fits with the quarterback the play that was going on there and he has a thousand yard season I think there's a scenario where Nikhil Harry is is that guy I'm leaving that open because I think there's enough good in his game that I'm not willing to just give up forever but I don't think I'll be personally invested in in fantasy or otherwise yeah I I have my reservations in terms of whether that pick ever pans itself out as well let's close out the night with Two final names, and we kind of set the stage before that, you know, number one wide receivers come in all different shapes and sizes now. The the days of the, the prototype, you know, everyone looking like a Julio Jones or an A.J. Green, those are that's not the case anymore. Long-term upside, where do you stand? I know you're a fan of Marquise Brown, but in that Baltimore offense, what do we think, you know, what do you think his long-term ceiling could be and just how, you know, productive he can be? And then on a totally different type of player, Debo Samuel, he's a different type of wide receiver. Where do you kind of, where did he kind of fit when you obviously take the injury out of it right now? But in his development, could he be a consistent top-end wide receiver, but just in a different way than we're accustomed to? Well, with Marquise Brown, I mean, I'm, I think he could just go crazy this year. Like how good he was last year, despite, you know, coming in injured and then suffering through injuries last year. You look at him right up there. That's he's at the 83rd percentile in success rate versus man coverage, 73.6% and has an above average score on all but one route on the tree. And that was the comeback, which ironically he told me back coming into the draft is his favorite route to run. But hey, maybe when he's healthy, uh, he's popping off on those comeback routes too. Uh, but yeah, so like, essentially I think he can be that number one receiver. And I think it's actually kind of crazy that Lamar Jackson had the efficient passing season that he did last year and Marquise Brown wasn't popping off for 16 games. So I think actually Brown coming into this offense fully formed and commanding, you know, 115 maybe tight targets. I think that could actually offset some of the clear regression that's going to go on with Lamar Jackson from a fantasy sense this year. So I think, I think Marquise Brown could definitely be not just a top level receiver, but also a true coverage dictator for the Ravens. And that's a rare feat for a wide receiver because we know what he can do vertically. And, and again, separating at all levels then you're really putting defenses in a bind because 
obviously you already have to take account their their really strong running game. You have to take into account what Lamar Jackson can do. And if you're having to then think about potentially dictating extra resources to stopping a number one receiver level fully broken out Marquise Brown, I don't know how I don't know how you play offense. I mean I don't know how you play defense against that crew. Then then you're really, like I said, in a complete bind. And Debo Samuel, I think again, he's sort of like we said with Brandon Ayuk, if he goes to any other team, I don't know that we're talking about Debo Samuel like we're talking about him coming out of his rookie season. Um, he's definitely, you know, all these guys we're talking about that are great against press man coverage. I don't think Debo Samuel is that, but they get him lined up against so many favorable matchups against zone coverage, and he showed up really well against zone coverage and reception perception, 85.6% success rate. And he's already one of the best after-catch receivers because he's just such a bully in the open field. So I, I think that he can have a – I don't again, I don't know that I'd ever call him – a number one receiver. And, and, you know, he probably, cause they have George Kittle would never be the top pass catcher on that team. Cause Kittle is such a unique weapon in his own right. But I think he can have an awesome long-term career for the 49ers barring any complication from his current injured status. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, them drafting, you know, I was a big Debo fan last year and I still thought though, that they could look for that alpha wide receiver. And when yeah. they were, when they were sitting there, you know, and then they made the trade for, you know, they trade to Forrest Buckner and then they had that other pick. I thought maybe that was the route they were going. I thought maybe they were looking for a guy. I know you love and CD lamb. Like I thought that was maybe, and then it's amazing just how one pick could dramatically swing. If you have CD lamb there instead of Brandon Ayuk. I think the perspe- the, the long term outlook for Debo Samuel changes in some people's eyes for sure. Some people's eyes a lot, but some people for sure. Not that we can't see two wide receivers be productive. We've seen plenty of that. But I do think the narrative now that it's Ayuk there and not a guy like CD Lamb probably pushed Debo's value up even a little bit higher, I think, in the perception in terms of dynasty leagues. Yeah, and I think there's a quote that Kyle Shanahan gave, I think it early in his 49ers tenure that always stands out to me. Uh, and oh, I think I should have remembered it even more coming into this year's draft class. Uh, he said it's something to the effect, paraphrasing a little bit here, that you don't need a number one receiver like Julio Jones. He's like, if you have Julio Jones, you use Julio Jones. You feed him targets. You don't be stupid with your usage of a guy like Julio Jones because he's rare. But you don't need to go out and acquire one of those players. You can play offense without them. And it's kind of the conversation that we're having here, you know, that, that there are so many different receiver options and so many unique roles that you could design for players that maybe you don't need to have that AJ Green, Julio Jones, alpha type prospect on your team. Uh, and the 49ers certainly do not, <laughs> you know, they, they have a lot of create plays type of guys at wide receiver, but they have a player. I mean, they have a coach in Kyle Shanahan who clearly believes that that's possible. Um, what did you guys think about DK? I don't remember our conversation about DK Metcalf coming out of uh, last year's class, but like he's another one to me that I think he's number one in a total smash spot there across from Tyler Lockett, who I believe is a number one receiver. Uh, but I think DK Metcalf could be that player too. I'm super excited about him as well. Again, just in this draft class of guys that I feel like got misunderstood coming into the league, he's probably number one on that list. Yeah, he he's a guy that definitely superseded expectations. He was a guy that I think pre-draft last year, maybe I had him at five. I think I had him one spot ahead in Nikhil Harry. I wasn't at the top. Some people had him, you know, right near the top. I was I was around five. Matt might have been slightly higher by by one or two here. And he he did 
go above and beyond. He's one of those guys that I was a little bit concerned that maybe he was going to be limited in what he can do, but what he showed that what he was capable of doing in college that immediately translated. And when that happens, I get really excited for a player. Like if you could immediately win at the NFL level, the same way you won in college, then everything else you add on to it is gravy. So DK Metcalf, I mean, DK Metcalf won in a lot of things. And there were, there were things that I think, and I remember you talking about this on a recent podcast, the different routes that he was really, really good at. Some of them, I did think that, you know, people saying he could only run a vertical route. Well, there was other routes that I think from his success on that in college that you knew he'd be able to run a a couple other routes similar to that, that they just didn't ask him to do it all miss. So there was a handful of routes that I thought he was going to be very good at the NFL. I just didn't know if it was going to translate as quickly as it did. And then if the rest of his game didn't develop and and the parts of his game that he was good at didn't abundantly translate like it did, I was a little bit concerned, but clearly, clearly he's in now a smash spot because he showed that that, skill set from college could translate and now if the rest of his game develops forget about it yeah i mean just to put some reception perception context behind it because i agree, pretty much agree with everything you just said over 50 percent of his charted routes in his reception perception sample were either a slant or a nine route but here's the deal he, he cr- crushed it on, on those patterns uh when you look at the best slant route runner in, in reception perception history, it's Des Bryant at a 94.9% success rate in 2014. Not far behind there is DK Metcalf at 91.4%. So use, and you see it every time you watch DK Metcalf, get off against press, get open on slant routes. It, he just reminds me so much of Des Bryant back in his peak in, you know, around 2014, like I said, um, and and I think he showed potential beyond just being a slant and nine route runner because he checks in at the 85th percentile in success rate first man coverage and has a really good 74% success rate first press. Like he's a badass off the line of scrimmage. And I think that if he does continue to develop beyond just running those small handful of routes, I mean, man, again, we're talking about Des Bryant type player playing across from Tyler Lockett with Russell Wilson in the in the backfield there is your quarterback. I mean, please, damn it, Seattle. No more first down runs ever. It should be illegal. Seriously. And and I think I think you're right. First off, playing with Russell Wilson, who even with Patrick Mahomes, I don't know if there's a better vertical deep thrower than Russell Wilson in terms of accuracy. You know, it's the perfect landing spot. And DK Metcalf, this is the, you know, here at Saturday Sunday, I like to sometimes talk about a range of outcomes that th- these guys could have. And I remember I, I went on shows last year and I said, DK Metcalf is really a, sh- a struggling eval for me because you look at him and there's this gaping spectrum where he could be a much bigger version, but could be Ted Ginn where he's just used as a vertical route runner is a guy who clears defenses and stuff like that. Or he could be a Will Fuller type or at the top end, it was, he could be a a Des Bryant or a Josh Gordon when Josh Gordon had his great year. Well, I wasn't expecting to the top of that mountain and especially not in year one. So I think that it it speaks volumes on maybe what his long-term upside is. So, I mean, we just went through so many guys from this class that, that could have really high ceilings. This is going to go down as one of the better wide receiver classes. You know, we always go back to that, you know, the 2000, I think it's 14, right? We always, we always go back to it, but I'm not sure that this one's not going to go down as better when, yep. when when everything, you know, when the dust settles. I mean, listen, 
there's a lot in 14, right? You have OBJ, you have, you know, Mike Evans and Devonte Adams and Allen Robinson. So you got a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so they got to, this class has to live up to meet like just those four guys. I just ran off, but they sure, they definitely have the potential to get there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that 14 group, I, I totally agree with you. Number one, um, it, it ha- this 2019 class has the potential to be as good, maybe even better than that draft class. But that draft class also teaches us several lessons. Um, the interesting thing about the 19 group is that uh, it has exceeded expectations where 14 really had the expectations and then seemed to meet it. Uh, but with, <laughs> with, with the 14 class, like I said, teaches us a ton of lessons, which is that careers can kind of ebb and flow. I mean, think about Jordan Matthews came out and had a really good rookie year in that 2014 class, and he's he's gone. He, he's completely out of the picture. Uh, Devontae Adams was probably one of the worst receivers in the NFL in his first two seasons and is now one of the best receivers, if not the best receiver in the NFL. Uh, Odell Beckham has obviously is at kind of, I think, a crossroads in his career. Is he ever going to get back to the peak, or is this kind of the new reality with Beckham? And then with Allen Robinson, has, is, is shown, look, I've been good all the time, but there's even another level I can get to. And, and we'll see which one of these 2019 guys kind of fit in that sort of career arc. And then you have players like Jarvis Landry. He's like, Jarvis Landry has always been Jarvis Landry. And, and, and that's really good. Uh, so, we'll, so maybe some of these guys will become that player as well too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that class is fascinating. And for the longest time you brought up OBJ, it always seemed to be that people thought it was exclusively – you know, Eli at the back end of his career that was holding back OBJ. But, you know, in hindsight, maybe that was part of it, but maybe not. It was, maybe it wasn't as much as we thought it was in terms of maybe it was partially on OBJ himself and, and that. So I think that's still a to be determined. We'll, we'll kind of see how that plays itself out. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time because I heard you wax poetically about your boy Marquise Brown. <laughs> I got to ask you the same question I asked you before about Calvin Ridley and Terry McLaurin. McLaurin, Marquise Brown, how you divvying up your Debbie, I mean, your dynasty assets on those two guys? Oh, man. Jeez, <laughs> um, that's tough. You could take the – you went all in on last one, 10 nothing. You can, you can split this one. It, well, I'm t- I mean, because uh, part of me is tempted to go all in again because – and now I'm asking myself here, do I prefer Calvin Ridley or do I prefer Marquise Brown in, in dynasty formats? Like, I think, oh man, that's tough. I'm just going to like the, the actual hard part of the equation is do I like Brown or Ridley more? And if I feel like if I go, you know, even 80, 20% towards McLaurin, Marquise Brown, then I'm kind of saying I prefer Brown over Ridley, which I'm actually not sure if I do. So I'll just go say again, I'm going to go 10 Terry McLaurin's because he's the one I think is a tier above these guys. I'm more, ex- I'm the most excited about him. So in order to to punt on the Brown Ridley debate, I'll just go more all in on Terry McLaurin. Now imagine a year from now, if you're back on the show and we're talking about Terry McLaurin being gift wrapped, uh, Trevor Lawrence or a quarterback like that. Right. Yeah. Now that's the worst, this is the worst part too, is like, I feel like I keep finding myself in these scenarios where I got to get personally invested in these bad quarterbacks. Cause like number one, am I, I mean, I mean, again, I don't, maybe Dwayne Haskins is, I think there's enough evidence in the last three starts of his rookie season that like, okay, he was in a real bad spot and and maybe he can, again, just be passable to average, maybe even become above average at some point. I don't know. But, so I'm not going to say he's definitely bad. And I'm not even going to say that Josh Allen is bad, but like, 
let me tell you what, man. Being this high on Terry McLaurin and being invested in Dwayne Haskins, therefore, and then also being like a longtime John Brown and Stefan Diggs, like hardcore truther, and now it's like they're both attached to Josh Allen. It's kind of a no, it's kind of a, not a, not the best feeling in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I'm I'm actually really intrigued to, to watch Buffalo this year because I think I think I think they're going to be better than. I mean, I think a lot of people think they could win that division, but I think yeah. their offense could be a little bit better than people potentially think and are giving them credit for. So, Matt, always a pleasure talking with you. Please, I'm sure most of my audience, if not all, follows you, but please let them know where they can follow you. And if there's anything you're working on that you kind of want to uh, promote a little bit or some something new maybe that's upcoming, if there is hopefully an NFL season this year or anything else in the works. Yeah, I think best best way to follow me at Matt Harmon underscore BYB on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you're curious about Reception Perception, if you're new, the best thing to do, just go to Twitter. Use the hashtag Reception Perception. I've been putting out a ton of content there. Uh, and that will, by proxy, re- lead you to the Ultimate Draft Kit with the Fantasy Footballers where Reception Perception is, again, featured this year exclusively. You get access to... All of these metrics, success rates on different routes, success rate versus different coverages for over 50 NFL receivers this year. And it, it's not stopping. You know, we'll be back. Hopefully, we've got some new data to chart next year as well, too. Absolutely, guys. Uh, make sure you're checking out all of Matt's great work, following him and everything that he's doing. Uh, again, great stuff there. Uh, again, on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.